Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Life Inspired Podcast. We took an unforeseen break last week due to unexpected circumstances, but we are back. Today's episode is a bit of a different format than we've done before. It's going to be much longer because I got the chance to interview C.S. Lewis's stepson, Douglas Gresham. We had some technical difficulties in recording Douglas's voice, so the audio quality is unfortunately not the clearest. So if you would like a written transcript of the interview, send me a message and I'll work on adding that to the show notes page. But without further ado, let's jump into the interview. Welcome to the Life Inspired Podcast. My name is Kimmy Ruth. I'm a writer and creator who loves deep conversations and a good story. I believe that life is a canvas, and the choices we make each day tell a story that we'll leave behind. That story matters, so let's make it a good one. Well, Douglas, thank you so much for um, taking the time to join me for this podcast. I'm very excited for this interview. I've been looking forward to it for a while. Um, my story with C.S. Lewis began for, as I imagine most other people's would, with the Narnia stories um, as a child. I remember my mother giving them to me and my grandmother uh, and reading them myself. And then when the Focus on the Family audio drama came out, I remember hearing your voice always introducing the stories and um, seeing them come to life that way. We were living in Arizona at the time, um, and we would go off-roading and camping and just exploring the wilderness out there. It's such a beautiful, beautiful part of America, and we would always listen to the Narnia stories on all of those drives, so that's what I have those um, connected to. Uh, and then it that is really what began my actual walk of faith. Even though I was raised um, by a Christian family and we went to church and I, I knew the stories and everything, it didn't really connect with me on a heart level until I was about 15 or 16. I remember having this moment where I just prayed and I didn't know, am I actually praying to a God? Am I throwing words out into the air? But I just remember saying, okay, God, if you're real, I don't feel what everyone else is feeling or telling me about. So are they making it up or are they, um, is this something that I, for some reason, just can't tap into? And it wasn't an immediate answer and it wasn't a feeling answer at the moment. Um, But I remember very clearly, probably it was a few weeks later that I was in my room and I just had this moment where in the silence, he brought back to mind the picture of Lucy and Aslan and um, especially in the Prince Caspian um, or in the book Prince Caspian there were so many scenes where Lucy and Aslan had these moments and these conversations and I remember him bringing that to mind and being like that's what this is like that's that's the start of this relationship that's what you can imagine when you think about me and that was really what began making faith tangible to me and started me on my um, my walk with Christ. And then, of course, reading C.S. Lewis's other books, um, or I guess Jack will refer to him as um, through the rest of this interview, because that's what you knew him as. Um, so all that to say, it's very near and dear to my heart. I'm very grateful to you for taking the time for this interview. You're very welcome, indeed. You actually started very young, I think, probably because Although I was brought up a Christian and believed in God all the time, because of what happened to me in my life, the dire things that happened over and over again, I sort of came to the conclusion that whoever was running my life was making a lousy job of it. <laughs> so I decided 
I was a farmer at the time, a dairy farmer in Tasmania. And um, I realized that I'd gone badly wrong, and I thought to myself, well, as a farmer, when, when something goes wrong, you like a tractor breaks down or something, you can't fix it. You look at the in maker's instruction book. So I thought to myself, well, who's the maker's and what is the maker's instruction book for the human being? And of course, in my mind, I suddenly realized it's the, uh, the Gospels of Jesus Christ. Hmm. So at that point, I'd handed my life over to him, and I've been that way ever since. I love that. I remembered when I heard you speak in South Carolina a few months ago, um, you had mentioned that even though you had believed, like mentally you had assented to the tenets of, of Jesus and Christianity and everything from a young age, you didn't really surrender to that until you were older. And so I was curious how that came about. <laughs> well, no, you know, I was trying to help someone. I made such a bad job that a lot of people got hurt instead of for people getting helped. Hmm. And that was what made me look inside myself and realize I was making a fool of myself. I think God always works that way. He has to bring us to the point where we are at the end of ourselves or we are humbled in a deep way. And that is finally when we are willing to look up and realize, yeah, oh. It certainly seems to work that way. Mm -hmm. Well, we can go back to the beginning, to your early years. Um, I was reading your autobiography, and so I know that you had known C.S. Lewis from his uh, first Narnia stories before you and your brother and your mother moved to England um, and actually became acquainted with him in person. Um, what were those first stories that you read that introduced you to him? Well, obviously, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, I mm -hmm. think, comes first. And then it's Prince Caspian next, I think, isn't it? Um, I can't remember the order anymore. I mean, I've worked with these books for so long, so often I just think like the order in which they came out, it just goes out of my head. But it was the first two uh, of the Narnian Chronicles that I, I knew about. I, I knew about my mother started reading to us when we were very small. Mm. And I, of course, started wanting to read them to myself, which I did quite early in life. And um, it's interesting, actually, because I went to school for seven years, one particular school, and I read everything they had in the library, including the Encyclopedia Britannica, which I got bored and read twice in the end. But I came out of that school unable to read, uh, unable to write. They didn't mm. actually teach me very much, I don't think. Anyhow, that's a side issue, but... Um, I suppose, really, I knew about Narnia. I knew what it was going to be like. I knew what it would feel like, and, and I loved the place. Having read the books, I had the, read, the books read to me. And, of course, when we got to the kilns, to go visit Jack, uh, when we arrived in England, I found myself quite disappointed with England in, in, in general, because when you're a little boy and you read the Narnian Chronicles and it comes from England, you expect everybody in England to be riding around on horses and wearing armor and stuff. <laughs> And when I got to the kiln, I was going to meet the man who knew Aslan personally and High King Peter and all of those. And I really sort of imagined that he was going to be wearing silver armor and carrying a sword and looking very dramatic. In actual fact, I met a stupid, balding, professorial-looking gentleman with long, nicotine-stained teeth and the fingers and very, very shabby clothes. And he just was complete disappointment for the first sort of five minutes or less. He was an enormous personality and his great sense of fun and his great kindness shone from him. And, and I... I lost an illusion and, and gained a very good friend very quickly. I love that. Yes, we have this picture in our minds that at first you have that moment of disappointment, but then you realize it is the reality is actually better than the image we had in our head. I've, and I think that's exactly the same with God, with Jesus and our ideas about him. But then when we meet the real thing, it's so much more powerful than everything, anything we could ever dream up. Mm. And that, it gives us a very hopeful picture then of what heaven is going to be like, um, that we Absolutely. might have our images, but it's not going to be any comparison to the real thing. Absolutely. Yeah. 
And I have no, I have no idea. I have no thoughts in my mind of what heaven is going to be like. I just know it's going to be. Mm-hmm. And life comes later, I think. We'll understand it when we get there. Something to look forward to. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, let's see. You had mentioned that he was very kind, that he was a lot of fun. What are some other qualities that stood out to you the more that you got to know him? I think the one that, that I missed most, um, I, I didn't actually cotton on to the fact that he, he had it for a long, long time, was the incredible courage of the man. Hmm. And that also goes to my mother. I, I never really knew how brave she was either until, until she had to show her courage too. But Jack was a man who'd fought in the First World War and I knew he'd been in the First World War, but didn't think you know, much of it in those days. I was a young child. Mm. As I grew up and grew older, I suddenly realized that I was in the presence of, well, two men, actually, him and his brother, Warney, uh, my uncle, um, who had immense courage, and also my mother, who was, who was a very, very courageous person. In fact, there's one illustration I can give you of that. I, I learned really face-to-face what Jack's courage was all about, and my mother's. And when my mother was in her remission from the cancer that was killing her, um, she said to Jack one day, we had this big wood with a lake head up behind the kilns which we owned. And, you know, lots and lots of trespassers would come in and they'd cut down the trees and throw rubbish into the lake, including each other more often than not. <laughs> and so my, my mother said to Jack, look, Jack, you know, we've really got to do something about this. So when she was in remission, starting to, to look around and sort of see what was really around her again. Uh, we, we, we must build a barbed wire fence along the edge of the, of the wood there. He said, it's no good, my love. If we build a barbed wire fence, they'll only, you know, cut the wire and steal it. So I said, well, we'll build the fence, and if, if they cut the wire and steal it, I'll buy a shotgun. And we built the fence, and they cut the wire and stole it, and she bought a shotgun and rebuilt the fence. And she would walk up into the, into the wood and the, and, the, and the forest up there and up the hill, cradling this actually very, very small 9 millimeter diameter barrel of shotgun, which could make a loud pop, and smoke came out of the end of it, and pellets spattered off the tree leaves. I don't know if the pellets actually even went through the leaves. It was a tiny little gun. But it, was, it did make, give the impression of being a deadly weapon, I suppose. <laughs> Very soon, the, the trespassers all, all disappeared. I mean, she, she hadn't shot any, but they just decided somewhere else was a better place to go to have fun. On this particular day that I'm referring to, Jack and, and my mother were walking on ahead of me up the steep path that led up the hillside of the kilns, uh, wood and the forest there. And when they got to the top, I was still lagging behind, so I was sort of further down the hill looking up. And suddenly, out from nowhere, leapt this man... Um, carrying a longbow and a quiver of arrows, obviously a young man, obviously sort of casting himself in the role of a latter-day Robin Hood or something. <laughs> and Jack said, excuse me, but this is private property and you really shouldn't be here. Would you mind leaving? And the guy's response to that was to knock an arrow to the string and draw the bow back and point it at them. Instantly, Jack stepped in front of my mother to shield her from the bow. But of course, she was the one carrying a shotgun. So after a second or two, he stepped rapidly sideways when he heard my mother say, God, Jack, get out of my line of fire. <laughs> so I suddenly realized he was facing someone with a gun in her, in her, in her hands who was obviously quite ready to blow his head off, he thought. And he vanished, disappeared very, very quickly over the fence and ran for his life. But the fact that to start with, Jack had the shoelessness to stand in front of my mother mm-hmm. to stop the arrow with his body. Immense courage, great chivalry. My mother, on the other hand, equal courage shot out from her when she ordered him to step aside so that she could shoot the guy. <laughs> Not that she would have, but she scared the daylights out of him. So I just, in that split second of time, or a couple of moments of time, I learned about the immense courage that both Jack and my mother shared, that, that, that physical courage 
above the, above the emotional courage, but the, the physical courage was was just something I hadn't hadn't taken on before that. Hmm. Well, and it seems then that the physical presentation of courage in that instance is. Um, a very tangible picture of what they lived out as they faced the years of um, when your mother's cancer returned and the struggle that that must have been, but how courageous they were going through that. My mother was the only person I've ever met before or since in my life who actually made jokes about the disease that was killing her while she was dying. Jack was, was Jack was one of the most kindly, most, most, generous man you can imagine. There was one occasion I remember too when um, my mother's in really, really desperate pain. And the sort of painkillers weren't helping at all. In those days, painkillers were mostly pretty primitive anyway. Mm. And so he prayed, he prayed that, that he might be allowed by God to take the pain into his body rather than watching her suffer it. And he suddenly came, became aware of this incredible pain in his legs. His face went white and he started to sweat, and my mother's pain evaporated. But there again is another case of great courage of a different kind. It was interesting, too, that later on, when my mother was desperately in need of, of, of her, her bones to regrow, and um, Jack suddenly started to come down with osteoporosis. And while he lost the calcium from his bones, or was losing it, my mother's bones were reknitting themselves. These kinds of miracles were not uncommon in our household. We just had to had to get a grip on the fact that they were miraculous. Hmm. Um, and Jack, Jack was quite happy to, to live in agony if my mother was going to live longer as a result of it. It's a remarkable man. They were both very remarkable people. And I miss them dreadfully. I can imagine. And to have that kind of um, example to watch, that is such a beautiful legacy to be able to carry on and something definitely to be greatly missed. And um, also something that that's why I wanted to uh, have this interview if it was possible. That's why I wrote that letter to you that day, because I thought this is something that needs to be remembered and something that needs to be celebrated. And that's, that's my hope is that these stories of what happened in y'all's lives and in C.S. Lewis's works, that this will carry on and that it will reach more people that they would be able to be inspired by these true things that happen because I think as powerful as the Narnia stories are as powerful as Jack's books are it really is almost an invitation to watch the story that God was writing in him and your mother's lives and in in your life um it's so beautiful to see how the one opens the door to the other and God himself is writing our stories and glorifying himself through the redeeming of our pain Yes, I agree with you completely. I, I think one of the most important books Jack ever wrote, apart from his, away from his um, Christian material, his Christian, uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Anyway, his Christian works, mm-hmm. um, it was, was Grief Observed. Mm. And it, it's a strange book to many people because they cannot understand how a man could have the courage and, and the tenacity to write it when he was in those states of horrible grief and, and despair almost. And he sat down every evening and wrote out what was happening to him. In fact, I don't know if you know the name, but Roger Lancelin Green, who's a pretty famous author in himself, mm-hmm. he's dead now, Lord rest his soul, but a very, very kind man. I liked him enormously. Mm-hmm. He came to visit Jack shortly after my mother's death. And uh, he, w- he was worried about Jack, and he came down from way up in the north of England where he lived. And um, I remember at lunchtime, he said, well, Jack, how are you, how are you getting on? 
there was just two or three of us at the table at the time. And Jack said, well, I'm doing what I always do when I'm in times of difficulty or trouble or, or pain. I'm, I'm analyzing in my own mind what is happening to me, and I'm just keeping notes and writing it all down. And Roger said, would, would it be all right if I read those? And Jack said, yes, of course. And he sent me up to his room upstairs to get the manuscript which he was, he was writing. It was actually an old, um, an old school um, exercise book he was writing it, actually. One of mine, probably. <laughs> but um, I brought it down, and, and I'd actually already read it, but I hadn't told Jack that. <laughs> but I uh, read it as far as he'd got. And um, he gave it to Roger to read, who read it that night, that evening. And the next day when he came down to breakfast, he said, Jack, look, you, you absolutely really have to publish this thing because it's going to help people in the same or worse situations than you are right now all over the world when they lose a family or lose a family friend or lose a member of their family. Um, you really you really must publish it. So Jack um, sent it off and it was completely tidied it up and made it into a book form. And he sent it off to uh, um, his, his literary agent, Spencer Curtis Brown in London, and uh, told him with the instruction that he was to send it to a publisher that they had never published with before and leave it under the, the uh, pseudonym, the pen name that he gave it, which was um, Dimidius, meaning cut in half. Is how he felt about my mother's last he was cut in half. Mm. But the, on the, so Spencer sent it off to a public name, a publisher called Faber. And Jack uh, had instructed him to send it with his particular pen name. But on the board of Faber at the time was T.S. Eliot, a poet whose poetry, actually, Jack despised and loathed. But the two of them became friends when they were both asked by the Archbishop of Canterbury at the time to help to revise the Psalms for the Anglican Church. Oh. They were in, both in, partnered in that. So they became good friends, despite the fact that Jack couldn't stand Eliot's poetry. But Eliot immediately read this and said, I, you know, I, look, I, I'm pretty sure I know who wrote this. So he wrote back to, to Spencer and said, look, with, I, I, we do, of course, we want to publish this. We must publish it. It must be published and we would love to do it. But you might suggest to the author, who I think I've probably completely identified, that he, he used a less distinctive pen name because he's, he's using a pen name so as not to embarrass his, his, uh, his college friends and so forth with his raw uh, showing of grief. But I think a lot of them will recognize it instantly. So Jack said, okay, and he, he, he Spencer sent it back and suggested this to Jack, Jack said, okay, and he, he sent it off back to Spencer, the, the pen name N.W. Clark, which is Anglo-Saxon, Nat Wilk Clark, which means no one knows the writer. But anyway, the, it went back to, and was published under that, under that name. And of course, friends of Jack, still worrying about him after my mother's death, mm. would be browsing through book, Blackwell's, one book, big bookstore in Oxford called Blackwell, or perhaps Foils in London, and they'd see this new book that had just hit the shelves, a grief observed by N.W. Clark, and they'd pick it up and sort of browse into it and say, oh, this would help Jack. And they'd buy a <laughs> copy and send it to him. We had a copy in every single room in the house. It's just one of those strange things that happened. He'd written this book and published it in the help of, in the hope of helping lots of people. Mm -hmm. And what he actually did was, in fact, turned up and he helped himself quite a lot by the generosity of people sending it to him. He suddenly realized this book, people had looked at it and thought, wow, this would help Jack. They had been so impressed by what he'd written that they mm -hmm. sent it to him himself to help him, but he meant it to help the world. And it is doing so still. Anyone who is bereaved in a big way should read that book. It's, it's incredibly valuable. That is really beautiful to see how God turns that around, but also is using it to multiply, to bless so many. And you mentioned that you had read it um, without Jack knowing it before it was published. So 
did it help you at that time or was that something that you had to return to in a more mature season of life to be able to work through? I was about, so I was about seven, 16, 17, uh, 16, 17, going on 17, I think nearly 17. Jack's death was just before my birthday, just before mm-hmm. his birthday, and just before my birthday. And I understood what he was getting at, and I agree with him completely. Uh, but there was just one thing that he got wrong in that book. He mentioned that he couldn't talk to us, us, boy, us being myself and my brother. Nobody could talk to my brother, that was a different kettle of fish, but he couldn't talk mm-hmm. to me about it, about my mother's death, because he knew that I would burst into tears, and if I burst into tears, he would burst into tears. Now, the point of that is the actual fact that in England at that time, and probably still to some extent, schoolboys don't cry. Mm-hmm. The most embarrassing and dreadful thing that can happen to you is to be caught crying in public. Now, of course, I've long since grown out of that idiocy, <laughs> but it was what things were at the time. So if Jack had, had started to talk about my mother, I would cry, and I would be horribly embarrassed by it, and I would be embarrassed to see him cry. And he seemed to, to miss that in that particular passage. But that's the only mistake, as far as I'm concerned, he made the entire book. <laughs> After the passing of your mother, you had mentioned in the autobiography you continued to stay with him for the next few years, and you both worked through that grief as much as you could. Was there anything from that time frame that has stood out to you, whether you recognized it then or it was something that you returned to in memory and, and noticed through hindsight um, that, uh, I guess, was something different that influenced you from your younger years? I'm not sure from my younger years. It was, it was a... It was a it was a difficult time for me. I mean, yes. I lost my mother at the age of, well, she started to die at the age of when I was 10. And we got this amazing remission as a result of me praying very, very hard. Yes. By the fact, I wasn't a particularly religious child. In the church of the Holy Trinity at Headington Quarry, I'd walked into, I'd been, I'd been taken to visit my mother in the hospital. Um, we thought, my brother and I were told that she'd broken her leg, which she had, it was true. But they hadn't told us why. Mm. When we got there, Jack did what must have been horribly difficult for him because he'd lost his mother to cancer when he was a little boy too. Mm. And um, he took us into an anteroom to her ward and, and, and said, look, I'm, I'm sorry to have to tell you this, but your mother's broken her leg because she's got terminal cancer and she's not expected to live more than a few days. This was at the very beginnings of the, of the horrible times. And um, because we were both absolutely shocked. And uh, my brother was told to, to show me the way home after we'd seen our visit with my mother. And of course, I walked in and saw my mother looking absolutely dreadful. I mean, horrible. I can see as of this day. It was just a complete shock. And of course, my brother must have had his feelings as well, and he reacted by running off and disappearing. Um, so I had to find my own way home at the age of 10 years old. And I found my, my, the path that led towards our place, which ran through the churchyard of Holy Trinity Church in Headington Quarry. And as I walked up the tinder path, um, I was just bewailing the fact in my own mind that I knew, I, I really, I, I couldn't make it. The only person I knew in the world whom I loved and loved me was, was my mother. Mm-hmm. There was no one else at that stage. We hadn't really got to know Jack properly at that time. Um, so walking up to the church, I was, I was just in despair. I didn't, didn't really know what I could do or where to go. But I lifted the latch on that wrought iron gate and walked through into the churchyard and out of this world. I know that sounds crazy, but it was a different environment that I walked into. Um, every leaf on every tree was glowing with an inner light, and the, leaf, the, the grass on the ground was, was brightly glowing as well. Everything was super alive. It wasn't wasn't like something that some you know movie best effect. It was just it was just real. It was the reality. 
way over and above the reality of our world as we know it. And I was made, pre- made know that there was a huge, very powerful and very grieving presence with me in the churchyard. And he said to me, I didn't hear this out loud, it was just projected into my mind. If you really can't make it without your mother, I can help, I can fix it. All you have to do is ask. That's a very important point. You need something from, from Jesus. All you really have to do is ask. And he will either give it to you if it's good for you, or if it's something that, that's going to lead to terrible strife and so forth. He, he won't, but you will find out later that that's why he didn't. But in any case, on this occasion, he said, you know, all right. I went, you know, I went into the churchyard first and found this voice in my head. And then because he'd said, you know, all you have to do is ask, I went into the church and I knelt at the altar rail and I prayed. I don't know for how long I sat there and knelt there, but it was quite a while. And then suddenly he said, all right, it's fixed. Go home and be at peace. But also that I shouldn't tell anyone at that particular time about this. So I went out of the church, uh, church and I walked down the path that led out of the far side of the churchyard. And as I walked through the, the, lifted the latch on the next gate and walked through that gate, I walked out of this beautiful environment I was in before and slapped bang into this shabby, shoddy world in which we lived. My mother went into remission either two days or three days later. Wow. So she was given back to me for four years. Now, I was 14 when she died. And a year and a half after that, 18 months after that, my father, by the way, visited us shortly after. My father from America came over and visited us shortly after my mother had died. Um, it was a, an arrangement they'd made before. She, was, she wasn't thought to be dying at that time. And um, when, Jack, when, when uh, he wrote to Jack and said, look, should I, should I postpone or, or cancel my, my trip? Jack said, no, no, by all means, the boys would love to see you. So he came over. And he and I were good friends by that stage. Um, so I think he was probably a bit hurt because I wasn't a little American boy anymore. I wouldn't throw my arms around him and give him a big hug like an American child probably would have. Mm-hmm. I held up my hand and said, how do you do, sir? As an English schoolboy would, which I was by that time. But in any case, we had a good time together. And then he went back to America. And about a year and a half after Mother died, my dad committed suicide over in the States. Mm-hmm. Uh, he had cancer of the tongue and throat and didn't want to inflict the sort of horrible symptoms and so forth that would lead to his death on his new family there. So he killed himself. And then um, things were, 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 I was living with Jack and Warney in the kilns. My brother was more or less disappeared somewhere else on his own, doing his own thing. He was a older than I am. And um, uh, about a year and a half after, after my dad died, Jack died as well. So it was a pretty troublesome time in my life. And this is why I say I, I thought, you know, that somebody really is messing my life up. Somebody who's, whoever's running this life is making a mess of it. Because that's how it felt to me at the time. Mm-hmm. And uh, looking back on it, I realized everything that happened had to happen, and for very good reasons. I just don't have any privy to those reasons. It wasn't at that time. Mm-hmm. Well, and then it seems that the, the next few um, seasons of your life was... Uh, a lot of twists and turns. You found yourself living with um, Gene Wakeman. Um, yes, and then you were working on different farms and trying to get into an agricultural college. And then you met Mary. And that was a fun adventure to read about. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, I actually, I did go to the agricultural college. I was there for a year, the first year. First of all, I had to work on farms. I met Mary. Um, I, look, when I was a little boy, my brother David was apparently schizophrenic and born that way. Mm. And he was dangerous. And I, I learned very quite early in my life, very small child, but I learned that if I didn't protect myself or look out for myself, I was probably going to get killed mm. by my brother. But, um, so I was, most of the time I spent alone. I, I wouldn't, wouldn't go near him if 
Mm. I don't know whether he didn't know he'd done it or whether he just was was, was able to change personalities. But anyhow, mm. getting back to the point, I would I would go off on my on my own and, and play by myself in the woods, the fields, and the forests, and our beautiful home up in upstate New York. And I always I was lonely, so I imagined in my mind the kind of little girl I probably would want to want to play with and, and meet and get to know. And I imagined what she would be like. Anyway, this went on right through my, my younger years and right through into my adolescence while I was still looking for this, this sort of imaginary girl who I, I knew must exist somewhere. Somebody must be like that. And uh, I was at a farm in uh, Somerset, so it was uh, Sir Edward and Lady Mallet's farm, and um, Harry, their son, ran it too. Anyway, Harry and I were, were having breakfast one morning, and Lady Mallet came in waving a piece of paper, and she said, Doug, you'll love this. Mary's coming to stay for a week. And I said, well, who's Mary? And she said, well, that's our niece. She's from Tasmania. And I, by that stage, I'd, I'd never even heard of Tasmania, I have to confess. <laughs> Anyhow, I said, how old is she? And they said, oh, something like she, I think she was, um, she was 20. And I said, well, she'd be too old to me. Yeah, she was 20. Too old for me. And, and, she, <laughs> and, and Harry said, no, no, anything with trousers on is good enough for Mary. Um, but anyway, that, that's a family joke, but... Um, so Harry and I were sent down to Taunton, where the railway station was, at the, the local sort of main station. And uh, we were supposed to get our hair cut at the same time, and we did that, and we went and waited on the station. Of course, trains were always late in those days, big, beautiful steam trains, I love them. Mm. Anyway, we were waiting there, and the train rushed in with a cloud of steam and stopped at the platform, and, and about 200 or so people got off it, because it was, uh, Taunton was the main sort of stop there. And... Um, I was watching all these people get off the train, and I saw this particular girl step down off the train. And I nudged Harry, I said, Harry, and he said, what? I said, you see the girl over there? He said, what girl? That's some. which one? I said, the, what, the blonde one over there, you know, and he said, oh, yeah, what about her? And I said, that's the girl I'm gonna marry. And he said, don't be daft, that's my cousin. <laughs> so I suddenly realized that we were picking the girl up at the station that I had been dreaming about all my life. <laughs> And it took me about three and a half years, every cent I had in the world, to persuade her that it was a good idea. But we celebrated our 52nd wedding anniversary in February, so we're not doing too bad. That's beautiful. I love that. So at this point, you're able to look back and tell your younger self, don't worry, keep going, it's going to be worth it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, and then um, through your autobiography, Lenten Lands, it kind of ends at a point where you guys were in Australia. And as a side note, I just thought it was very interesting that you spent many years as a radio announcer then because to for me to have been introduced to you through your work with the radio, um, like the audio drama of the Narnia stories, I just thought how cool that God uses different pieces in our lives to come into play again in future seasons. Um, but I know yeah, that... It, it, is, it, it is interesting, actually, how that happened. I had no intention of ever becoming a radio broadcaster. My father had done some before me, but I had no intention of ever, ever becoming anything like that. It happened because Mary was being a bit, um, you know, a bit, a bit silly one morning, and she, she never reads newspapers. She never has. This particular morning, on our farm farmhouse um, breakfast table, the local paper arrived, which I had sort of taken an interest in lately and, and I wasn't reading it so she picked it up and started to read it and she suddenly said to me look there's an advertisement in this paper for a local radio station in the town of Burnie which was actually about 30 miles away uh, or more um, it says it needs uh, another announcer um, and it says if you've got a well modulated voice why don't you put in for this and you talk too much put in for this and see if you can get paid for it she was joking but just to sort of sabotage the joke I rang the radio station I said come up for an interview I rang the station they put me straight onto the manager and with my voice and, and my intonation and so forth the way I speak he said come straight up and, and do an interview so I did and I got the job <laughs> so, 
in radio. At the same time, I was farming, and Mary was milking one set, and then I'd milk the next one, and I'd go off and do my radio work in the, in the mornings. And that went on. I, I worked at that station for a total of about three years. And then uh, lots of other things happened. But that's how I originally got my start in radio and television. So God was laughing, too. You can definitely see that. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Very it's really, it is rather funny what happens. Yeah. It led to a huge career, which went on for years and years. And I made an awful lot of money out of it, I must confess. <laughs> well, and then you left that... Um, in Australia to move eventually to Ireland and start Rathvenden Well, Ministry. not quite. Actually, we, I went, we went, Mary and I decided we hadn't seen enough of Australia, so we bought a big caravan in a car and we sold our farm for a huge amount of money. And we went off across the other side of Australia, wound up in Perth in Western Australia, where I went back into broadcasting and did very well. But I originally, in the end of that, I decided, as our kids were growing up, I thought, look, we both, Mary and I, agreed that we would far rather bring our children up in a rural environment than in, and in, and in a, a city environment. Mm -hmm. Because it's just better for them, we thought, and it turned out to be absolutely right. It's exactly the right step to make. So we went back to Tasmania and bought a big farm with all the proceeds of my radio and television work and settled down to be farmers again. In the end, um, that came to an end because the Lord, decided, by that time I'd, I'd handed my life over to Christ, and he made it quite plain that he had work for us elsewhere. Mm. So we wound up selling the farms. The boys were at university or, or back in, in their own careers by then. And um, we had our daughter, Lucinda, with us still. And, uh, and we had a little adopted girl we adopted from Korea called Melody, who's, mm -hmm. who's a delight too. Anyway, we, we, um, we said, well, you know, we looked at each other. Well, where the heck are we going to go? What are we supposed to do? And we, we realized suddenly that for some reason, which we couldn't fathom, the Lord was calling us to Ireland. So we went over for a look, and we, we asked uh, a local real estate agent to show us around a bit, and for some reason he kept showing us huge, great mansions of houses. All we really needed at that stage was a cottage with three, three or four bedrooms, because we had only two daughters at home, and Mary and myself. So um, in the end, we, we, we were let know by, by God that there was a particular house, the first one we looked at, actually, was the one he wanted us to have. So we finally came back, and the most amazing things happened when we bought that house. The owner of it was a very fine man, though he was a, a bit of a stranger in some ways, and he owed a lot of money. But he um, he was asking a certain amount of money for the, for the place, and I said, well, you know, we need some furniture just to move in with because all our stuff is in Tasmania from our house over there. We won't get here for a few months. Would you leave behind just enough things for us to move in with, like two, you know, a double bed for myself and my wife, and bed each for the two girls, maybe a spare for perhaps a visitor, and just things like that. And uh, he said, he looked at me up and down, and we knew he was an atheist. He told us he was an atheist. He didn't want to hear about God. He didn't want to talk about Christianity at all. So he looked us up and down, and then he said, well, no, I won't. I thought, well, there goes the deal, because, you know, we've got to have something to sleep on. And he said, well, what I will do is this. He said, look, the furniture in the house has been valued at 50,000 pounds. And it was a big house, please note. And um, I'll tell you what he said. You go and pick out what you need. And he said to Mary, you, know, you, take, you take, take, take the list with us. We'll pick out what you need, and you can have half of it. And I said, well, you mean you want another 25 grand? And he said, no, free, gift for nothing. Now, this guy didn't know. He knew we were going to be serving Christ and what we were doing there. We didn't, know what, we didn't exactly know what we were going to be doing, but it was going to be in the service of Christ. This guy who was an atheist and hated the church and hated, hated, hated talk about Jesus or anything, gave us 
£25,000 worth of furniture, had a great deal more when we actually got there, absolutely free. Wow. And years later, when, when we were running the ministry, we, we found, when we, we were still using the crockery he left behind for us <laughs> in our house in Malta. And we found all sorts of things that he'd left behind that we didn't expect. Sheet, the bed sheets and all the linen, and towels and stuff like that. Anyhow, occasionally he would come back, sneak into the village uh, to meet his old mates at the pub, you know, and I'd happen to see him there. And if I had some guests with him, because I really went down there without them, I've had guests at the house, I'd take them down to show them an Irish pub. Mm-hmm. And um, I would see, see this guy there and I'd say, oh, I'd like to meet this fellow. This is the amazingly wonderful man whose generosity allowed us to start Redland Ministries from day one. And you can see a look come across his face. He was delighted to be introduced as this enormously generous, great saintly man. But he didn't have the faintest clue why he'd done it. He was in a mystery as to why he'd actually given all that stuff away. <laughs> that was quite visible on his face. But he was a nice guy. I liked him. Then that is so beautiful because you know right then and there, God was very clearly directing you there. He was very clearly providing everything that you needed. And also, I love that you can see God's humor again and again, <laughs> that he was going to use this atheist <laughs> fear. Absolutely full of it. Yeah. Yes. Okay. So, as I he... mean, he caught me out the other day, just the other day, I came back from, I was doing a speaking engagement in uh, Cincinnati. That was before the Cincinnati. That was after Cincinnati. Anyway, anyway it, was a, it, was, it went exceptionally well. I did a great time. There were about 9,000 people in the auditorium. And it was a wonderful evening. But um, I had a terrible cold and a terrible sore throat. In fact, I still hadn't quite got over the raspiness of it yet. Aww. When I came home, I, I, first of all, I got this message from Mary saying she, she'd hurt herself in the garden Aww. and was sort of confined to bed. But luckily, a friend of mine was helping her and looking after her while I was away. And I came home to find that my, that my wife was just barely able to move in bed with the pain in her legs, upper legs. And of course, this immediately shocked me with a remembrance of my mother's pain in her upper legs, which is exactly what happened to her. Yes. And then, um, luckily, our, our gardener, who's a really intelligent guy here, went out and bought a walking frame for her so she would be able to get out of bed and get around a bit. So she started hobbling around on this thing. And that bang echoed back to my mother hobbling around on hers. Yes. And then walking with a walking stick. And by the time we got, we got the x-rays didn't show anything particular. But then they didn't in my mother's case either. And the, so eventually we were told we had to have an MRI by my, my second son, who's a specialist in that kind of machinery. Okay. And so, and he lives in Australia. So we were all a bit frightened, I think, all, all the children, myself and everybody, yes. praying furiously. And, um, but to me, I'm watching my wife hobbling around exactly like my mother did, scared the dickens out of me. Eventually we got the MRI done and the surgeon we were sent to to read it and, and, and explain it to us said it was just a case of acute osteoporosis, which is when the, the, uh, the bones lose the calcium and become spongy yes. and, and that irritates the nerves around them like crazy when, when you move them at all. And to be honest, I was so relieved when he said that that I nearly cried because I'd been seeing my mother in my wife and my mother, of course, died. So Mary's now on calcium pills and she's walking around again. But <laughs> for a while there, I was scared. I was, I was petrified with fear. And I almost felt the Lord saying, see, gotcha. Oh, I love that you can have that, that humorous perspective. Well, I think you have to be. If you didn't in this world, you'd be, it'd be a sad, sad state indeed. Mm, this is true. 
Well, I'm very thankful to hear that it was something rectifiable for Mary and that it's not going to be. (laughs) Um, It is not a tragedy in the making. And I'm very glad to hear that she's doing better as well. She's doing well now. Thank you. I have a lot of people praying for her. So thankful to have praying community. Amen. So after God provided everything to start Rathfinden Ministries, how did that take off? Was it sort of one step led to another, or was there a moment where you had a light bulb? The whole thing was planned by the Lord from day one. It it started with me sailing a boat that I'd restored across a piece of very uh, lively sea at that time in the Whitsunday Passage, which is up in the the, uh, the Coral Sea. And Mm -hmm. myself and my eldest son, James, were on board. He was about to go off to America and and, uh, start his education as as an airline pilot. Mm -hmm. And anyway, we were, I I was at at the helm, and and all of a sudden James came up the the companionway and said, Dettles is, that's my nickname, Dettles, there's a guy on the phone from Canada wants to talk to you. I thought, well, that's weird. I said, well, you better come and take the helm. And we were heeled right over, traveling quite fast, about 10 knots or something, powering across the sea. It was a fast, it was an ex-racing boat that I totally restored. Mm. Anyway, so he took the helm. And I'm down below, and every time a wave sort of surged to the boat, I get bashed again about something. So it was a lively conversation. <laughs> it turned out to be from a very, very brilliant um, and very honest psychiatrist in Canada who is renowned for telling the truth and therefore hated by a lot of people. Mm. But in any case, he was telling me that he was... Um, coming over to Ireland, and, and uh, we were about to go there. And he said he was looking for a place in Ireland to um, to, to hold seminars to teach his his, um, his specialized uh, system for helping people who had been either post-abortion syndrome um, sufferers who'd had abortions and realized that it imploded on them later on, and um, what they'd done and the horror that hit them, and to get through that, and also people who had been abused as children of terrible suffering later in life, and he was—he he, he devised techniques to deal with both of these problems and deal with them very well. So um, I said, well, you know, we're going to be moving um, to shortly, and we, we'll have a look at it. So anyway, it, it went on and on later. I, I said to him, after we'd, we'd put the boat away and gone, flown all the way to Ireland and found this house, and, and we'd, we'd go there, and I said, well, we're renovating that. He phoned one stage, and I said, we're renovating this huge old mansion. And it's probably going to take us about six months. We should be ready. I actually, I think I told him this on the boat, actually, when we were talking about But anyway, I said, it's going to take a while, and I've got a lot of men who are going to be working for me, but we should be ready about September or some month of, of that particular year. He said, well, that's about the time I want to hold this, this seminar. I said, well, you'd be very welcome to use our home. So he arrives in due course. It's one of those interesting things that the Lord, with his sense of humor, sort of makes work. We had a lady in the village uh, come up and help us do things and so forth, and she and Mary were busily sweeping out bits and pieces and just getting the bedrooms ready for the guests. And as the guests walk into the bedrooms, they would often pass one of the workmen walking out as she'd just finished everything in the bedroom. And I, I drove up to the airport to pick up Philip, bring him back. And as we got back, the last dust and, and sawdust and things in the, in the front hall were being swept out, out of the door. Everything was timed to the split second. Wow. And then we started, and, 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 and sort of all the people arrived, all the, all the, uh, the, the students who had come, we gave them each other bedroom and bathroom and so on. And then the next day, after everything was settled in, Philip said, oh, come on, Marion, you've got to come and be, t- be trained. She said, I can't, I've got to do all the cooking. He said, no, no, he said, get someone from the village, you need to be trained. 
turned to me and said, you too. I said, but I've got to oversee the, the, the remaining remaining bits of the of the renovations for this outside the building and down and so on. He said, no, no, you can do that on your cordless phone. So we were sort of dragooned into, into becoming psychotherapists. <laughs> we ran that ministry for 13 years, and I don't know how many thousands of people we went through. But we never charged anybody. That was the important part. This was work mm. for the Lord Jesus. It wasn't work for money. That's and toward the end of it, of course, I got pitch bowled into the, into the movie business. So that took off. So we realized it was getting too much for both of us. Anyway, we were getting a bit old for the stage 14 years later or something. So we decided we would we would shut it all down and, and go elsewhere, which we did. We wound up living in Malta, which was where we live now. Every single thing in that ministry was governed by the Lord. It was just, it was fascinating. It was a wonderful way to work, but uh, it, was, it was very, very hard work. Mm. He moved us on when the time was right. That's so beautiful to see what happens when you are following Jesus, that we don't have to be the one to have the plan. We don't have to be the one to uh, prepare ourselves or put things together, that as long as we're walking with him, he puts us in each stage of the process when we need to be there. That's absolutely right. Yeah. But one of the things I worry about is some, some of the people I meet, and, and uh, I, I meet young people, quite often they have a terrific idea about a mission they can see or a ministry they can see that they could do for, for, for Christ. But if it's something they want to do, rather than what Jesus wants them to do, it's going to fail. Mm. Inevitably. So I tell young people in that sort of situation, look, I said, before you plunge into this, make absolutely sure in prayer that this is what Jesus wants you to do. Because if you set out to do something which is your own idea, but not what he's got in mind, it will not work. He has something in mind for you. Find out what it is and then follow it. Do it. Because I have seen ministries collapse because they what the, the pastor himself decided should be done or what the, the, the couple decided should they should do for Christ rather than letting Christ tell them what he actually wanted them to do. Mm. <laughs> I've heard um, the saying, and it, this is making me think of it, that Jesus asks for followers more than he asks for leaders. And um, I think this is where that would play out is that instead of us... I think absolutely up, right, yes. Yeah. What I'm talking about, really. Hmm. And that's very needed. There's no point in telling Jesus what you're going to do for him if he doesn't want you to do it. <laughs> it just doesn't make any sense. This is true. Wow, I guess a lot of us... Um, I don't know if it's a modern mindset or if this is something that people have always struggled with um, and we're just starting to talk about it more now um, of us having... I think there's no shortage of dreams and ideas in today's world. Um, and the difficulty is learning to quiet the noise so that we can hear the voice of Jesus instead of our own. Mm. That's very true, I guess. I think you're right. There are all sorts of ways the Lord shows himself or reveals his intentions to us. But they're very, very seldom the ways we, with the ways we expect him to. Hmm. We live in an interesting world. We do. So you mentioned that you shifted from the season of ministry in Ireland to working um, a lot more with C.S. Lewis's works as they started being put on the big screen, um, and then you moved to Malta. So how did that uh, transition to working more with Jack's works and the different um, mediums that they were uh, being translated into, so to speak, um, 
how did that come about? Was that, have you always been involved with his works and the C.S. Lewis Company Limited, or was it something that they asked you to step in and take more of a greater role? How did that happen? Well, I've always been involved, heavily involved in the company. Okay. Um, they sort of, they, they, they recognized me a long time ago, because they didn't know any better, I suppose, as being probably the, the, the person who knew Jack best and knew and understood most what he wanted, which is probably true, actually. I'm probably the last man living who really lived with and, 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 and knew Jack in a deep way. Mm-hmm. I don't think there's anybody else left, quite frankly. Oh, Chris Tolkien would come close, but he, he never lived with Jack in, in our home, mm-hmm. as I did, and with Warney. So I think they, they understood that I probably knew Jack's intentions and Jack's ideas and so forth better than anybody around. Mm-hmm. And so I started quite quite young in, in this business. And um, the publishers also uh, started to use my, my knowledge, uh, which I grew up with, of course. Mm-hmm. Didn't have to do any study much about it. Um, <laughs> to, to just help in, in small little ways here and there. So in the end, it, it, it worked, it wound up with me working for the publishers quite a lot, and I still do. And also uh, for people who want to know about this, that, and the other thing, and people who want to write a uh, write a stage play or something for I don't know one of the Narnia books or something, and it has to come across my desk because the, the, the company trust me to be the person to, to judge that, you know, as whether it should be mm-hmm. done the way it's written or whether it should be changed and so on. So I've been working, I suppose, thirty something years now on this sort of material. And I, I do regard it as, a, as a, a duty that I have. I mean, Jack did so much for me, um, but I regard it as a duty to protect and, and promote his, his works. Hmm. Um, moral responsibility, I suppose, more than anything else. And I also enjoy the work, to some extent. I mean, sometimes it all comes in, in great lumps, whereas about six or seven different screenplays, or stage plays, rather, will land on my desk or something. But you get through it. Um, most of them aren't too bad. There are two people in the world, actually, who send me a script and I know it's going to be good. Mm. One's the last called Nicole Stratton, who is with the Logos Theatre in, in, in the, uh, South Carolina, I think. And the other is a lady in the Philippines, whose name is Luna Inosian, and she's done several scripts for, for Narnia Productions for the uh, Trumpets Theatre Company there, which is a Christian theatre company in Manila. Oh, wow. And her scripts, I mean, I don't, I don't have to change anything. It's just... I just know this is going to be good, and I enjoy reading them because they're so good. And so, you know, we've actually become quite good friends because of that. But I do meet some, I do come across some that just, just they haven't really figured out what the book is about, and they just write something rather trashy, mm-hmm. which I don't allow. Um, mm-hmm. At least the company doesn't allow through my advice. But I go back and, and help them change it if, they, if they're willing to do that. I love then that you get to connect with different kinds of artists who are all inspired by Jack's work and that you get to um, further those partnerships to keep to keep the stories alive and um, reaching the, the audiences. The interesting ones, you know, the really interesting ones are the ones who come in from, I don't know, Russia or somewhere. I don't speak the language. They have to translate this. <laughs> they have to translate this, this, this stage play into English for me. They always find somebody to do it. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, could be, it could be someone from or someone from Japan or something like that. Wow. It's quite it's quite interesting to see how the different uh, countries, the people who live there, the, the different uh, ethnic populations, take a different look at them, at, at things that happen in some of the books, and you have to straighten them out a little bit mm. because it's it's the Japanese people will do it in a very Japanese way, which is fine, mm-hmm. unless you, it's something that clashes with the reality of the book. Mm-hmm. It's quite fun to go through those. 
I bet. It's like a mosaic of being able to see all of these different um, angles of perception of the story. It's interesting to, to see the different cultural lenses, how it shifts perceptions one way or another. Absolutely true. So are there any, um, I know that uh, the movies of the Narnia stories, um, they kind of hit a standstill for a little bit and it's passed from, from one film company to another. The last that I heard, it was picked up by Sony and that they were going to reboot the series starting with the silver chair. Is that true information or is there a different plan in place or is that even something that you can talk about? Well, it was true information, but it is no longer. Okay. Um, they, their ideas and our ideas, the company's ideas and mine and so on, um, about how Narnia should be presented and how that story should be told were, were exact opposites. And so we decided mm. we'd part company. Okay. Do you foresee um, any future televised versions of other Narnia stories? Um, or I think it's highly likely. We, 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 we've been in negotiation lately with Netflix. And okay. they will make an announcement when they decide to make an announcement if, if, if things are going to happen. Mm-hmm. What is your favorite Narnia story? Oh, uh, whichever one I happen to be reading at the time someone asks. <laughs> Which one are you reading now? Um, well, it has it has recently been The Silver Chair, but mm-hmm. I'm probably going to move on to, to reread The Magician's Nephew fairly soon. I reread that, that book frequently. Mm-hmm. What are some other books that Jack wrote that have stood out to you from the rest? <laughs> Almost everything except his... his um, University duty books, you know. <laughs> I, I, I read his. I mean, at the moment, I'm reading um, "Till We Have Faces Again," oh, which I is actually uh, a collaboration between Jack and my mother. Really? And he wanted to, to put it under both names, which he said no, her name on it would only lower the, the sales, and, and it never actually sold very well initially. Mm. But the scholars around the world are now suddenly waking up to the fact that it's probably the best work of fiction he ever did. And I've always thought that. And of course, my mother helped him to write. Feminine viewpoints, um, because his heroes and heroines are in, in that book are all females. Yes. You know? So she, she, and he got together and wrote this book, and it, it is a fantastic book. I'm rereading it at the moment for about the fifteenth time, I think. And I always, every time I reread that book, which I've, as I've read it many times, I keep finding new little pinches of meaning dotted here and there that I hadn't seen before. Mm. It's, it is an astonishing piece of work. I had no idea that your mother was involved in writing that book. I love learning that, and I wish it had been published under both names. Well, I think she was right. I think it would have detracted from the sales of the book at the time, but then it mm-hmm. didn't sell very well anyway. Largely, mm-hmm. I think, because people would just read it and, and then put it aside and, and forget mm-hmm. about it, rather than reading it and thinking, oh, wait a minute, I've missed something, and read it again and find mm-hmm. they've missed quite a lot, and read it again and find they've missed even more, and so on. It's a book that grows as you read it. Yes. And it's now being realized as such around the world. I mean, I had talks with a variety of scholars and um, they have said what did I think of Two Year Faces I keep saying it's, it's I think the best book Jack ever wrote mm-hmm. most of them are starting to agree with me mm-hmm. well there's so much depth and layer of symbolism sorry say again there's so much depth and layer of symbolism in that book that goes way, way deeper than um, even the symbolism in the Narnia stories. Like, the symbolism in the Narnia oh, stories is like it opens absolutely. the door it's, to it's, that it's world. A, it's an adventure story for grown-ups, in a sense. Yes. It's also a love story for grown-ups, in a sense. Mm-hmm. And it's also a story that points out a great many things about God, which we might otherwise miss. Yes. I think that's important, too. <laughs> I think it's interesting 
to see that in any given time frame, if you judge a work based on its initial reception or um, whether people talk about it or not, and you assume, oh, that's the sum total of the value of the book and that's it, then you miss <laughs> the richness of what happens many years later. Um, I, I think that's very well, interesting. Well, did, did you know, for example, that William Shakespeare was just a guy who was hired by a theater. When they needed a play, they said, hey, Bill, uh, we need a tragedy for Thursday night. Can you bash one out? And he would, and it would be absolutely breathtaking. But nobody knew that at the time. And we're still reading Shakespeare in this very day. These plays are still being produced. Yes. Well, and I think uh, Jane Austen was very much the same way. She was not um, liked almost at all during her time frame. And now... Well, women weren't supposed to write books in that era anyway. Yes. So most of the ones who did usually used a, man, a sort of a male nickname, a male pen name. Yes. But Jane Austen didn't. So, you know. But now, of course, we realize that she was a fabulous writer. Yes. I love that. It's like God plants little hidden treasures at different points, but it's almost like a time release <laughs> capsule where we don't recognize the value of it until some t- sometime later. But then it How about shows George MacDonald? Have you read any of his work? Oh, I love George MacDonald. Um, yeah, so do I. Jack said he had never written a single word that wasn't influenced by George MacDonald's works. Wow. That's... That's really saying something. And to think, because I think, wasn't George MacDonald not very well appreciated during his own time? I don't think he was very well appreciated at all because he was telling the truth. Telling mm-hmm. the truth in any time of human endeavor will get you um, probably hated or disliked or, or laughed at. But George MacDonald told the truth the way it really was, even in his fiction. And as a result, he came out with a, a plethora of wonderful, wonderful books. And Jack was a great George MacDonald fan, as I said. I love that. Um, there's a few. I know. I remember one time reading that Jack had mentioned specifically fantastes, if that's how you pronounce it, as um, one of the. Say it again. Was it fantastes? Oh, and fantasties. Fantasties. Okay, that's how you pronounce it. <laughs> fantasties. Oh, no, I know what you're talking about. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that is one that I have not had a chance to read. I haven't been able to find it yet, but I'll keep looking for a copy because I know he had it's mentioned available. that one. It, it's quite a difficult book to read the first time. Okay. And uh, there's another book in the name which has escaped me at the moment, which is slightly similar. But, um, yes, it's, it's a fabulous book, but you do have to read it probably four or five times to really start to get the understanding of it. Mm-hmm. It's not written in his normal style at all. Okay. Well, that's good to know before I get into it. <laughs> so I can keep that in mind. Now, I'm curious, this is going back a little bit to Lenten Lands. There was a brief poem at, on one of the first pages of the book that the title... Uh, um, looks like that's where it was taken from, but there's no author listed to that poem. And when I searched it, the author was C.S. Lewis. Was it? That was that was the epitaph that he wrote on a plaque, which is uh, on the wall of the crematorium where she was cremated. Oh my goodness! Okay. Here the whole world starts right. Here the whole world, forest, fields, streams, etc. Et yes. Wow. Yeah. Well, that's that. That was the epitaph that Jack wrote for her. Okay. That's really beautiful. Wow. Now, you mentioned um, at, in the afterword of that book that there was a lot more that you could probably write another book about. Is that something that you would plan to do in the future? Or yes, as soon as, I, as soon as I get the time to do so, <laughs> I start work at 5 o'clock in the morning, and I usually finish sometime late in the evening. I'm not getting much time to write at the moment, mm. but I will certainly try to get that done. I'm so 
everybody keeps saying, when are you going to write another book? So I think the title of it will probably be another book. <laughs> well, I will keep an eye out for that in the next few years. <laughs> uh, is there anything that... Because one thing that I've been um, thinking about, especially with this series, because I'm hoping that this episode will be the first of several that I do within the Legacy series um, and talking with different people about uh, whether it was artists or business owners or um, people I've known in real life or um, theologians or just different people who have left an impact behind them that somehow has touched my life. I'm wanting to highlight each of those stories and celebrate what it was that they did that left such a great impact um and my guiding phrase i guess for this series is the term heirloom living i came across it a couple of years ago um from another writer and i absolutely loved it because it presented this idea of legacy not as this um abstract big picture concept but as this idea that it's what we do in the ordinary days of our lives whether it's our choices our habits our words our relationships that we invest in that what we are doing is creating a story that we get to pass down to the next generation whether that is our children or our grandchildren or our friends or the community or um, for people who have touched a public audience Um, I just love that idea so um, bringing this back around to your time with Jack and with um, your mother Joy what are some heirlooms that they passed down to you whether they realized it or not things that you want to pass down to your children whether it was qualities or examples that they set or anything along those lines I think I think we all leave something behind us mm-hmm. we all leave things that our, that our families will never forget in my case a lot of them won't be very nice <laughs> <laughs> but some of them will be um, I was a pretty strict, strict father I think at times and of course I went through a period of being sick for about oh, five years or more ten mm-hmm. years before I, and nobody could diagnose what was wrong with me until a very very clever and uh, intelligent doctor in Hobart in Tasmania figured it out. Mm-hmm. Um, I was slowly dying of a thing called uh, systemic catadiasis, which is when a fungus starts taking over your entire body. But anyhow, mm-hmm. that, that put me into difficult situations because my mind was, was not working properly and I was getting crazy. Mm-hmm. And I also was losing weight to the extent where I was skin and burned and running a farm at the same time. Oh, so wow. I was pretty, I was, at that stage, I think it was pretty hard on my kids and on my wife for that matter too. But this lovely uh, doctor in, in Hobart finally managed to figure it out, and I just, it was weird because he put me on some drugs and some uh, medicines. And as I took them, I suddenly found this really strange sensation and feeling coming across my body. And it took me about three weeks to figure out that I was feeling well. And I couldn't remember ever feeling like that before. <laughs> but I have, I, I, I'm sure I've passed all sorts of weird and wonderful things about both my, my, my daughters and my, and my sons. Uh, but but I think one has to wait until those things start to emerge visibly to understand that they actually did take them on board. But my kids are all doing very well, and I'm very very proud of them. Mm. My son James became an airline captain because I was an, I was actually practicing aerobatics for years in in uh, Western Australia, and I was talking about it. I was enthralled with the aerobatic flying, and um, so James kept he was only about six at the time, nagging at me to take him up and show him what it was all about. Okay, come on. So we went up there on a little lovely aircraft called the Victor Air Tourer. And I strapped him in very tightly, of course, strapped myself in very tightly. And we took off, we went up to the top, and we did a few lazy barrel rolls and just, just gentle aerobatics. Of course, he was as sick as a dog. He was luckily a pro 
provided plenty of paper bags for him. He was very sick. But anyway, when he started to turn sort of green colour, I thought we'd better go down and land, and I landed the aircraft. And when I was tying it down to its parking spot, he went off to the rubbish bin and put his sick bags in the bin and came back to me and said, Dettles, I want to be a pilot. <laughs> I said, you're crazy, kid. Come on, look what happened to you. And he did. He became an airline captain. And he worked for Delta Airlines for quite a long time. Wow. But then finally he got very bored being what he called an airborne bus driver and uh, gave it up and went back to Australia and bought a beef farm. So the next door place came on the market a while later and I bought that. So he now runs 6,000 acres of beef and forest country. Wow. And he loves it. And he's, he's a great guy at that sort of stuff. He's very good at that sort of thing. Hmm. He's a brilliant mechanic too. But anyway, my second son, Tim, went in a different direction altogether. He decided, having um, been mixed up with, with all sorts of interesting ideas, he now runs his own company, Importation and Distribution of Medical Diagnostic Equipment. Mm. And he imports stuff into, into Australia and, and uh, makes sure that it gets known, and he's doing very well. My third son is the artist of the family, and that in, in the boys anyway. And he's become an architect, and he's doing very well, lives in Brisbane now. And my eldest daughter spent seven years in Florence training to be a jeweler to be a goldsmith, a gem setter, a pearl stringer, everything in jewelry she can do. And she's very, very good at it. And so she now is, is a full, well, she's actually quite sick, but uh, she's got a thing called erythromyalgia. Very painful, and there doesn't seem to be any really, really effective prevention or cure for it. You just have to live with it. But she's doing very well despite that and making some amazing jewelry. She made quite a lot of jewelry, jewelry for me, for me to give to the principal people in in the making of the Narnia movies. So, you know, rings and, and pendants and whatnot. Wow. So she's done a, a lot of beautiful work for me and she just, I, I just, I'm enthralled with her, with her work, the, the, the artistry that she puts into the stuff she designed. Hmm. She also does custom work. If people come in and say, look, we want, I want this very special uh, engagement ring. And she said, well, if you describe it, I'll draw it. So as they describe it, she draws it until it's exactly what they want. And they keep changing until they get it exactly right. And other, any form of jewelry she can do this with. Then she'll go away and make it for them. Uh, so she's incredibly talented, and she's a very sweet person. And our youngest daughter, Melody, who is actually an adoptive career, is just an absolute ball of fire. She's, <laughs> she's so cute, she's wonderful. She actually has degrees in French and Italian languages, speaks English, um, and she's Korean, and she's not very big. She's only about five feet tall, I think, if that. Aww. And um, so she sometimes teaches English as a second language, or has done for a few years as, as a part-time job, I think. And so you've got this wonderful, beautiful little Korean lady who is teaching um, immigrants from all over the world English as a second language. And she does it, or despite the fact that she's Korean with a broad Irish accent, <laughs> which I think is hilarious. Yes. And we I have a lovely it. family. We have a wonderful family. And I'm sure that when I'm dead, they'll be telling wonderful, wild stories about me. <laughs> oh, that's so much fun. Yeah, we've, we've, we've got a great family. We're, we're very proud of them all. Delighted that God gave them to us. Hmm. Um, throughout this com whole conversation, as well as when I had heard you speak in South Carolina, you were always coming back to 
Jesus. And I just loved that. I loved that um, not only were you not afraid to uh, in a world that is growing increasingly cautious about it, but also I loved that it's very evident this is not manufactured or forced or anything. This is just flowing from who you are, that you love him and you are thankful for what he has done for you. And um, that just really blessed me to to see that. Well, I'm glad. I'm glad. The thing is, you know, really, we are in the hands of God, whether we want to admit it or not, whether we're atheists or I don't actually believe in atheists. I think, because <laughs> yeah, atheists are trying to defy something that doesn't exist as far as they're concerned. So what's, what's the point? I mean, it doesn't make any sense. You can't really say there is no God and defy God uh, if he is existent. But anyhow, that, that's just a little side issue. <laughs> but yeah, um, I, I, if, if you are in the hands of God, you, you must realize it, and you must, I think, admit to it and, 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 and just go along with it. And I think that my whole life pivoted on the moment that I gave it over to Christ. I mean, I was doing all kinds of stuff and farming and doing all this sort of thing, but I was never, ever actually happy mm. until I turned my life over to Christ. That day was just, just extraordinary because I went from being suffering of severe anxiety syndromes and this disease that I had that was making me slowly fade away. Mm. And suddenly it just all turned around. I was filled with peace and calm and it stayed there ever since. That's beautiful. Well, I think one has to admit, admit to the people who do good for you, even if one of them happens to be God. Hmm. I'm looking over my questions to make sure if there was anything <laughs> else that I wanted to ask you because it's been um, a little over an hour and I want to be respectful of your time. Thank you. Well, you asked an awful lot of questions you didn't ask me. You tend to do that. Well, no, but that's perfect because that's what I said is I've realized there's usually a lot of magic in going off script and I've learned that mm. I want to allow the room for that because I don't want to, you know, follow a plan so um, statically that we we lose the beauty that happens in the unplanned. Um, so I'm very thankful for all of those moments. <laughs> well, as we wrap up, are there any book recommendations, whether it's... Um, was by Jack or about Jack or about your mother or anything that you have found personally um, edifying or well, I think inspiring? Everybody, everybody ought to read Lenten Lambs. I think that's important because I, I wrote it and therefore I need the money. <laughs> uh, <laughs> no, I'm not serious. But I, I do hope that people do enjoy Lenten Lambs and also my book, Jack's Life, which, by the way, um, it's, it's, a, it's my biography of Jack written for children. And it's surprising when it first came out, there were a few reviewers who said things like, I don't understand Mr. Gresham's tone in this book. It's almost as though he were writing for children. And I thought, well, duh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, oh, it was written for it. children. But a lot of people seem to enjoy it anyway. Yes, I um, had bought both of them and I read both of them before this interview because I figured, you know, before interviewing you, I might uh, I better read what you had to say. I know a bit about the guy, yeah. Yes, and I loved... Did you, enjoy, did you enjoy Jack's life? I did. I loved it because I'd read many other biographies of him before and none that was written in that style. And even though I am not a child, I still appreciate things that are written for children because there's something about it that simplifies it to just the the most essential parts of the story that it really connects in a um, in a pure way. And it's something that I could definitely see reading to my children when um, they are able to be introduced to Jack and, and what he wrote. Well, I'm very pleased that you feel that way. Thank you for saying so. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Doug, for your time. I really appreciate you. I have greatly enjoyed this conversation. Um, I'm looking forward to sharing it on the podcast once we get going this summer. And I hope you have a great rest of your day. 
and same to you. Thank you very much indeed. Well, I hope you enjoyed listening to that interview and that you gleaned some nuggets of inspiration for your own life. For me, I was amazed at the perspective Doug has on the difficulties he's faced in his life. The ability to find humor in hard places is a rare one, but I think it's one that's worth cultivating. If you'd like to follow up with any of the books that are mentioned in this podcast, you can head over to the show notes page at kimmyruthwrites.com forward slash podcast and click on the link for this episode. Next week, we'll be diving into an episode inspired by a recent favorite film of mine. So until then, stay curious, stay kind, and I'll see you next time. Bye.